Would you open your Bible in the middle and hopefully be in the book of Psalms? If you don't have a Bible, there are plenty on the shelves at the back there. Feel free to help yourself. And then turn to the beginning of that book and to Psalm 1. Let's turn to Psalm 1. The Psalms are rightly loved by Christians. I think one of the main reasons for that is because they are honest about the varieties and the unpredictabilities of life, about the experiences and the emotions we face. Uh, But to properly appreciate those Psalms, which we love, we need to enter them through Psalms 1 and 2. Psalms 1 and 2 have been called like entrance pillars to the book of Psalms. And... uh, God didn't put the Psalms here in the Bible in a random sort of way. He made Psalms 1 and 2 come first for a reason. And one of the reasons is this. The book of Psalms tells us about personal experience, about joys and sorrows, about confidence and doubts, about prosperity and and struggles. And if we're going to benefit from those Psalms and those subjects, we need to know, first of all, Despite all the varieties of experiences, in the end there are two types of people. Two types of people and one of them is blessed. And Psalm 1 tells us that. To set the scene before we get into any other Psalms, we need Psalm 1. So, we're going to, this evening, I was going to say go through Psalm 1. That was my intention, but I discovered there was too much here for me to manage it. And so we're not going to fully go through it this evening. We're going to take two goes over it. I'll say more about that in a minute. But first of all, let's just have a look at verse 1. Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man. Man, by the way, here simply means human. It's not man as opposed to woman. It's mankind. Blessed is the human. Blessed. What's that word? It gets used in church quite a, a lot. gets used outside of church a little bit, but not as much. The word here used for blessed isn't the word the Bible always uses for blessed. It's a word that basically means happy. You would be pretty near the mark if you simply translated this, happy is the man. Or, look at the happiness of this man. Or, more more loosely, you could even translate it, here is the desirable life. So let's have a think about that. Let's think about the desirable life. What does our society say the desirable life is? How would your neighbours and colleagues describe the person who has a happy life? Have a think, and I hope to hear from you. What sort of things would they look at and say, there's the desirable life? That's the person who has something to be happy about. What sort of things? Security. Health. Money, and enough of it to not have to worry about the cost of living crisis. You don't want anxiety. Status, a job that has status, looks successful. Yeah. And good relationships, a united happy family, maybe prospect, uh, popularity also. Maybe along with health, fitness, and some good looks wouldn't be a bad thing either. All sorts of things that people say, that, yeah, that's the desirable life. That's the person who has something to be happy about. Where are those things in Psalm 1? 
Well, they just don't appear at all. Nothing like that appears at all in Psalm 1. Now, by the way, the Bible doesn't say that they are irrelevant. It's worth remembering that. The Bible doesn't say that they are irrelevant. But they do not appear at all in this psalm that says, here is the desirable life. Here is the person who has something to be happy about. The biggest lesson of this psalm is a radically different message about who is blessed. The person who has something to be happy about is radically different from what our society and most people say. So this this evening's message is going to be about persuading you and me, because I find I still need to be persuaded of this, to persuade you and me to believe the radical message about who is blessed. There are details of this psalm I'll leave. I was, as I said, hoping to go through uh, and look at it all, but there's just so much in here. We'll have a second go at it next week and come back to some of the details. This evening is about persuading us about who's the blessed person. So, what is the blessed person like? Well, one of the clearest messages of this psalm could could be summarised in the word distinct. The, The psalm is setting up a distinction, a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Let's have a look at some of that distinction. As I say, we'll come back to it next time. But some of that distinction. First, we have a distinct lifestyle in verse 1. First one, a distinct lifestyle. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. Now, we'll leave the details to next time, but just notice, this is so different from what our society says, and nearly everyone around us says. Firstly, it's negative. Blessed is the person who does not. People say, oh, typical Christianity, thou shalt not. It's all negative. But you see, right from Genesis 2, God has said there are things that are bad for us and will get in the way of blessing. Don't do them. It's, it's different from what our society thinks. Also in this way, it says there is blessing in not fitting in. Where's that? It's the last line of verse 1. Blessed is the person who does not sit in the seat of the mockers. Sitting in the seat. This is about belonging. In the staff room, there's a group of seats, and you know each lunchtime there's, there's a certain group that always sit there. And if you've got a seat there, well, you belong to that group. You fit in with them. As Psalm says, blessed is the person who doesn't belong, who doesn't fit in with the mockers. Who are they? People who think following Jesus is backward, and it's, it's pointless, and it's wasting your life. Now, that doesn't look blessed to most people. And you're only going to believe it's blessed if you are, as the beginning of verse 1 says, not walking in the counsel of the wicked. You're only going to believe this radically different message if you're not walking in the counsel of the wicked. Now, how does society counsel us? Society is always counselling us. It doesn't lay us on a couch and say, here, let me give you a course in counselling. But it's always putting into our minds an idea of what the blessed, the desirable life is. How does society do that? How does it get its messages to us? Any thoughts? How does the world's messages about what's the blessed life get into our minds? 
adverts. Yeah, isn't that what it's all about? It's saying, that's the thing to desire. This is the lifestyle to desire. Yeah, but it's not just that, it's more subtle. How else? Social media. Yes, because there you're always seeing and people are presenting to you a certain life. And you think, yeah, that's, it's, it's interesting how people put, don't they, on Facebook or these great places they've been and, uh, and the things they've done. And I remember one Saturday morning asking various people, what are you doing today? And nearly all of them said, oh, I've got chores today. That doesn't go on Facebook, does it? But it's presenting, this is the life to desire. How else? It's just the culture all around us. It's the films, it's the books, it's the newspapers, it's the magazines are always presenting to us what to value. It's conversations, isn't it? What gets talked about shapes what we think is desirable. Now that also shows up that this message isn't switch off to social media, although that wouldn't be a bad thing necessarily. Never watch TV. Make sure you never see an advert, because I'm certainly not saying never have a conversation. Yeah? I'm just saying all of these things have a way of shaping us, and we've got to be aware. What about children at school? A taught right from a young age, it's all about comparing yourselves with others. It's amazing how even from a young age, they know how they rank, and they know what success to aim for. The world is always giving us its, first one calls it, counsel. Yes, it says counsel of the wicked, but if you know your Bible, you know that the world and wickedness go together. We need more, though, than just guarding against bad counsel. We need good counsel. So the blessed person has next a distinct basis, a distinct lifestyle in verse 1, a distinct basis in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He gets his counsel from the law. Now, we use the word law very narrowly. Here, it doesn't just mean commandments. It's a word for God's instructions. In other words, the whole Bible. Now, to be blessed, this man must have faith. There is a better way than the world's way. God's way is better than all the ways on offer around me. And so I'm going to give time, verse 2 says, to finding out what God says and thinking through what it means. Now, we could spend the rest of the evening on that, but I hope to come back to it next week. Let's move on rapidly to, thirdly, this blessed person has a distinct future. A distinct future. It has been asserted in verse 1, this person is blessed. But we haven't been told how he is blessed until we get to verse 3. And in verse 3, we have a contrast. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Here we've got a picture, it's easy to get. How brown is your lawn at the moment? If you've got a lawn, it's probably pretty brown. But if you've got trees in your garden, I doubt their leaves are all brown, are they? And withered up. We could just go and look in the church garden to get a demonstration of this, because trees cope in drought, especially if they're planted by streams of water. We've got a pear tree in our garden. I got it six years ago. And my father-in-law said to me, 
You grow a pear tree for your grandchildren. They take a long time and they keep on producing fruit. Years and years on, they provide fruit. That's the picture in verse 3. What a contrast in verse 4. Verse 4, we have chaff. I'm told, to, I always called it chaff, but maybe that's just because I'm southern. I'm told you should call it chaff. Children, you know what chaff is? I've got here, I hope the farmer didn't mind, this is out of the farmer's field. And later in the year, the combine harvester will go around the field and he'll cut down this wheat and basically, to put it very simply, what the combine harvester will do is rub this very hard and then with a big fan blow, I haven't rubbed it hard enough, but the combine harvester will blow and all the rubbish bits will just get blown away while the good is kept. And the rubbish bits that are blown away by the combine harvester are the chaff. And it was basically the same but unmechanised back then. And so it says the chaff, the wind blows it away. And it's gone. It's rubbish. It's unwanted. The contrast is clear. The picture is easy to get. The righteous person is going to last and produce something worthwhile like the tree. And the wicked person will soon be gone like the chaff. The picture is clear, but what's the reality behind it? Everyone dies. Everyone's work gets left behind. And although this is rather sad to think, everyone eventually gets forgotten. Do you know much about your great-great-grandparents? That's not many generations back. I don't even know the names of my great-grandparents. Everyone eventually gets forgotten. How can we say that some are like lasting trees, while others are like the chaff, soon gone? What's the difference? It doesn't look very different. And some Psalms, actually, later in the book will comment on this. It doesn't look different. It makes no sense without verse 5. It all depends on verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. It makes the picture of the tree and the chaff makes no sense without this. There is a judgment coming. God is going to judge all. And there's an assembly of the righteous. There's a time when God's people are going to be assembled together around his throne. This is a big theme of the book of Psalms, and it's being set here in verse one, uh, Psalm 1. There's a time when all God's people are going to be gathered around his throne, worshipping him. It's the same subject in verse 6. Verse 6. And to, to show this, have a look at the first and last words of the psalm. And by the way, it's the same in the original language the psalm was first written in. The first and last words. Have a look at them and that gives you quite a lesson. First word of the psalm, blessed. Last word of the psalm, perish. There is the contrast the psalm is about. There is perishing, the judgment. There's blessing, which is not perishing, but always having God, verse 6, watching over you. Literally, it's knowing you. And if you know your Bible, you might know that that word know is not just have some facts in your head, but it's this personal, loving, caring knowing. There's the contrast. There's blessing, which is blessing forever being known by God. And there's perishing. And that's why some are like a tree and some are like chaff. 
Now, this is familiar to, to most of us. Possibly all of us. It's familiar. There's heaven and hell. There's life and death. There's God being for us or against us. But Psalm 1 is saying, you won't understand what the happy life is. You won't understand what the desirable life is. You won't get it right if you're not taking verse 5 into account. But there's judgment and there's being with God assembled round his throne. Christianity makes no sense if the so-called afterlife is an afterthought. And that's worth remembering. Christianity makes no sense if the so-called afterlife is an afterthought. Is it an afterthought to you? Is it a tag on the end thing? Or is it the heart of your understanding of what the happy, the blessed life is? Here's an example. I don't know if this will be any help to you, but I'll try it anyway. Imagine two people. And one is having a picnic and lying back in the sunshine. And the other is working hard running. Now, which one is it better to be? The one lying back enjoying the picnic or the one working hard running? The answer is you can't tell. Until I tell you, they are not in Queen's Park. They are in the Commonwealth Games Stadium. And they're in a race. And the finish line is very worthwhile getting to. And do you see the picture? You can treat this life like the picnic, or you can know that it is a race and the finish line is well worth getting to. I wonder, can you think of something that Jesus said very similar to this psalm? Very, very similar. I would I would guess that Jesus had Psalm 1 in mind when he said it. He began some of his teaching with it, interestingly. The Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that? What did he say? Things like blessed, happy, very similar word, happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed, happy are you when people insult you. Did Jesus enjoy being insulted on the cross? Of course not. But blessed, happy are you when people insult you, because great is your reward in heaven. See, it's just the same as Psalm 1. We won't keep going in the Christian life. We'll end up following, verse 1, the counsel of the wicked, if we don't believe verse 5. There is a judgment coming, and there's a time when God's people will be assembled around the throne of Jesus, seeing him, and that, that is the prize worth having. That's the happiness worth aiming for. Now, I've left out lots of details that I hope to come back to next week, because I've said this evening I want to persuade you to believe Psalm 1's radical message about who's blessed. So next, and, and more briefly, let's do this. What's the evidence for this? I've gone through and stated the message. What's the evidence for it? What is the evidence that we are in a race with a worthwhile finish line? What's the evidence that there is eternal life that makes the righteous person like a tree compared with chaff? Well, to answer that, we've got to look ahead and ask this. How does the New Testament use the book of Psalms? I hope you read the Bible for yourself. I don't presume that people do, but I recommend and hope that you do. And when you do, you will come across the New Testament quote Psalms quite a lot. So next time you're reading your New Testament, look out for quotes of Psalms and see how does it use the Psalms?
What do the New Testament writers do with the Psalms? And the answer is this. They take what the psalmist said and they say, this is about Jesus. And they do it with all sorts of Psalms. Now, you can't do it with every Psalm. David confessing his adultery is not a picture of Jesus. Can't be done. But the New Testament writers do it with enough variety and quantity of Psalms that they're clearly giving us a lesson. And the lesson is, when you read the Psalms, ask yourself, could this be about Jesus? Well, let's do that with Psalm 1. You have to ask yourself, could this be a picture of Christ? Well, can you see Jesus in verse 1? Let's, let's go, we're going to go through the Psalm now and see. Do we have Jesus here? Can you see him in verse 1? I shouldn't ask such a closed question with a yes or no answer, should I? How can you see Jesus? There you go, the answer is yes. How can you see Jesus in verse 1? Yes, he is the only person who never walked in the counsel of the wicked, who never stood in the way of sinners, who never sat in the seat of mockers. He sat down with sinners, didn't he, and ate meals with them. He, he kept the hard path of mixing with sinners, but never one of them. Did it earn him a steady income? Did it get him a comfortable life? Oh no, he was called the man of sorrows. Not the blessed man, but the man of sorrows. And yet he was also the blessed man. Hebrews says, for the joy that was ahead of him, he endured all that. Now, do you see that's exactly Psalm 1? The man of sorrows, but he's blessed now. Can you see Jesus in verse 2? Or how can you see Jesus in verse 2? Do you remember Jesus as a child? Where did his parents find him? In the temple. Why was he in the temple? Well, he was asking questions about God's word. He was wanting to learn. Then he grew up and he went to the synagogue. And as his custom was, he took God's God's word, the scripture, and he read it and he knew what it meant. Not because he was the son of God and had special insight and shortcuts. No, but because he was a person who had loved to read and meditate on God's word and he understood it. He spent the night in communion with God. He said, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Which he certainly couldn't do if he hadn't read it and meditated on it. Can you see Jesus in verse 3? Verse 3. Is Jesus described anywhere as a tree? Well, you might think of Jesus adapting the picture of a tree and saying he's the true vine. Maybe we'll come back to that next week because that's the clue as to how we can be in Psalm 1. We've got to be a branch in him, the vine. We can't go straight from Psalm 1 to us. It's got to be through Jesus, the vine. We're branches in him. But you might think of, this is a little less obvious, Isaiah 53. He grew up before God like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Now, think of a tender shoot, a tree that is just pushing out of the, out of the seed, but it's in dry ground. That doesn't look so hopeful, does it? A tender shoot in dry ground is in danger of drying up and looks pretty vulnerable. And Jesus looked like he'd come to nothing as he hung on that cross. He looked like a tender shoot that didn't have enough water and was going to die. 
But now, he's the tree who's lasted 2,000 years. He lasts and lasts. And his leaf doesn't wither. He's yielded fruit. Nothing in this world. Think of all the trees there are in this world. All of the orange trees and lemon trees and apple trees and pear trees laden with fruit. But nothing is as fruitful as him. The saviour of the world, the true vine that's fruitful. And his work endures, and whatever he does prospers. What did the angel say to Joseph? Call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not he might, not he possibly will if enough people believe in him. He will save his people from their sins. And he said, I haven't lost any of those the Father has given to me. Everything he does prospers. So yes, Jesus is in verse 3. You wouldn't expect to find him in verse 4 to 5, would you? Because he's not the wicked person. So you wouldn't expect to find him there. And yet, and yet, there was a day when he came under God's judgment. And he didn't stand. No, he didn't stand. He was crushed. And he was blasted out of God's presence as if he was chaff. Blasted away. So out of God's presence that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all the wickedness of his people was counted to him. So yes, he's in verse 4 and 5. And yet, verse 6, the Lord was watching over him. Even when he was forsaken, even in the darkness, his father was watching over him. So now, as Psalm 22 says, you know this one in Psalm 22, David is is prophesying about the Messiah says, he leads the assembly, he leads the praise in the assembly of the righteous. We're back in verse 5, and Jesus is there. And he welcomes into that assembly all who are trusting in him. Are you? Are you trusting in him? If you are, he welcomes you in. And one day he'll welcome you in forever. So Jesus is our evidence that the blessed life is what Psalm 1 says and not what our society says. Now, I've said I want to persuade you that Psalm 1 is is, is right about who is blessed and our society is wrong. Now, you might wonder, well, why are you trying to persuade Surely most of us would say, yes, we believe, Psalm 1. Yes, we're on a Sunday evening. It's mostly Christians who come on a Sunday evening. Why have you chosen tonight to say, I want to persuade you that Psalm 1 is right about who is blessed? Well, do you really believe Psalm 1? Be honest with yourself. Does your life show that you believe Psalm 1? What does your effort go into? What gets your attention? What gets your time? Not just your spare time, not just if we're we're, uh, a bit less under pressure today, we can give some time to this. No, what gets your best time? What do you give thought to how to achieve? What do you actually think about? I want to achieve that. How am I going to go about getting it? Is it the same things as our society? Is it the same ambitions as your unbelieving neighbours? Do you in practice have the same idea as them about what the desirable life is? Who the happy person is? 
Or is it what Psalm 1 says characterises the person who has something to be happy about? Are your desires, your ideas about what makes the happy life being set by the counsel of our society or by the counsel of God? Found here in Psalm 1 and demonstrated, evidenced by Jesus himself. Ask yourself the question. And let's pray now that God would help us to be honest about that. Let's pray.